Good morning, everyone. We're one. We're blessed by the Lord to be able to gather together through fellowship, pray, remind each other what God has done, and to open His Word. Today, I'm going to preach on First Corinthians chapter four, eight through ten. And while we're still on this title slide, I'll read the text. And before I start reading, I want to make sure you know that what I'm reading is Paul using irony. Okay, so it'll sound a little strange, but it's the text we've come to, and we need to understand it. Paul's using irony, and the last time I preached, we covered the passage that says, what do you have that you not have not received, and if you received, why do you boast as if you haven't received it? So now we'll go into today's text. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. You are already full. You're already rich. You've already begun to run, reign with, as kings without us. And I w- wish that you did reign so that we could reign with you. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are, we are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak but you are strong, you are distinguished, but we are dishonored. And as I said, this is ironic. I'll explain why. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for uh, helping us to open our hearts to understand the truth of what you said, why you said it, and how it applies. May we have wisdom and uh, humility to receive your word and grow thereby and continue to proclaim you, even though the message is not popular with the world. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have here irony. And verse 8, I've highlighted a few things that show some of the issues between the Apostle Paul, other than the other apostles, and then the Corinthian church, which had been taken in by some bad thinking that was rather pagan. 1 Corinthians 4, 8. You are already full. You are already rich. You've begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish you did reign so that we could reign with you. And so the, uh, the irony here is some theologians have pointed out that one way to describe the Corinthian air is over-realized eschatology. And I want to explain what the issues are and why there's a problem. After Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth, evangelized and discipled, after he left, there came others who had a more powerful, so they thought, or super spirituality that somehow left aside the offense of the cross, Christ crucified. In my points here on the slide, the elitist had already arrived. So this is, this irony is so strong, some have said it's almost sarcastic, it's so strong. So the words in the Greek here, and I have another slide that will talk about this, are actually verbs. And so rain is the verb, rain is king's, 
reign without us. I wish you did reign. And to put it in very simple terms, okay, so you're reigning. You've got everything you need. And you do so without us. You don't need the message that we preach. Do you have a place for us in your kingdom? Ironically, of course, you wouldn't want to be in that kingdom. And that's the point here. So in their minds, they've already arrived far beyond what is reasonable for anyone who is living in the church age, trusting in Christ and being rejected by the world. But they miss that whole point. So each word that Paul uses shows their lack of awareness of any need. One of the things that we should realize that all of us who have come to Christ and know him as Lord and Savior should be very much aware that even redeemed and filled with the Spirit and trusting him, this still isn't the glorious state that's promised. We still live in a very sinful world. Our ideas are not those that the world around us share. Our beliefs are mocked, and we still get sick. We still have the same effects of living in a fallen world that uh, attack and harm us, and we need each other, and we pray for one another. And the basic essence of biblical Christianity is not some overt, over-triumphalism, how great we are. It's our need for Christ and our longing for his return. In the book of Revelation, in 3.17, it's to one of the churches, Laodicea, because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And then he says, buy of me. So the point is, it's very possible to claim more than what's actually true, to make grandiose pronouncements about our own selves as Christians, whether we're comparing ourselves to somebody else as a Christian and portraying them in a really bad light and our own selves in a good light, or making claims that go beyond, in this case, what was true for the very apostles appointed by Jesus Christ himself. And that was the problem. So this is very ironic. Now some, and I think there's certainly truth to this, uh, the Corinthian heirs often labeled over-realized eschatology. That terminology was used by Gordon Fee and Dr. Thistleton. And there were other issues besides that, because when your eschatology is bad, other things go astray as well. And so if you look at some of the moral problems, the confusion, the wrong categories, the lack of love, the various things that happen as we go through Corinthians and we see that, when you have bad eschatology, a lot of other things go astray too. So others like um, Dr. Gardner and other theologians point out that they're... Um, how would you say it? They're adopting the values of the pagan culture or is also a big problem. And therefore, they claim they could judge others and portray themselves in a good light. 
So this is very harsh irony. But it's called for. Here is Paul, the apostle, as we see in Acts, spent a year and a half, poured out his life, laid it on the line and preached Christ and disciple people, and eventually they decide there's something seriously wrong with him. And it's not right. So let's look at some more of this. I want to go, I have a slide that kind of lays out visually the claims that would be what they consider themselves. Already filled, the word for filled is only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Acts 27:38, where it says that when they had eaten their fill of food, they lightened the ship by throwing the wheat into the sea. So in the narrative of the shipwreck Paul was on, they knew they were in trouble, so they ate all they could and then threw everything else into the sea so they could make it without perishing. So that's filled. You don't eat so much, let's eat as much as we can. So in this ironic statement, they're glutted. They have more than anybody could ever want, but really only in their own minds. And the sort of filling and enrichment that we do have in Christ are the very things that were preached and mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians. The very fruit of the Spirit, the hope, the eternal hope, the relationship with God through Christ, the forgiveness of sins, an inheritance of the saints, partaking of the promises of God, though future, these are glorious benefits. But to those who are seduced by the lure of this already overrealized eschatology, we have it now. Don't listen to those pathetic, defeated Christians like Paul. We have something better. They are neglecting the very riches that we have that are, is, that are there because of a relationship with Christ. Let me, re- if you want to turn to this, I'll read 1 Corinthians 1, 5 through 7. Let's remind ourselves of what Paul said was true at the very beginning of this epistle to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 5 through 7. That in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very important to keep that in mind. In the very beginning, Paul tells them what's true based on a relationship with Christ. But as we get into this, we find out how they understand it is really askew. All Christians are enriched in him. But I'm not uh, saying that everything out there that calls itself Christian, this is true for. I mean those who have believed the gospel 
have turned from serving the world, self, sin, the devil, and they come to Christ, sins are forgiven, born of God, have an eternal relationship, have the gift of eternal life, and they're depending on him and believing his promises as he sanctifies us. All those for whom that is true are enriched in him. But the false apostles come along and say, no, you are lacking. We have something Paul never told you about. Come and listen to us. And that's where the problem comes from. You were enriched. And so the issue of speech, knowledge, and gifts will come up later in 1 Corinthians, where some began to make comparisons between themselves and others in the body with the other ones always ending up on the negative end of it, lacking something. Remember 1 Corinthians 12, some will say, or one part of the body will say, I have no need of you. We can never say that. Because if God puts someone into the body of Christ by grace through faith, whoever that person is, whatever weaknesses or difficulties anyone may have, we need the whole body of Christ. God doesn't make mistakes, and we need to honor God's work that brings people into the body of Christ. I've written out a statement I want to make about this. They indeed already did have status in Christ, as Paul mentioned at the beginning of the epistle. They had what was needed until the Lord comes. All who know Christ have great riches, whatever their difficulties may now be. That knowledge is what causes us to feel compassion for our brothers and sisters when they go through serious difficulties. It causes us to pray. It causes us to take action. It causes us sometimes tears and sorrows because we see what people go through that we love dearly. And the worst thing that happens is when over-realized eschatology, if you want to use that um, categorization of the this air, that people who are Christian but are, quote, defeated and disease-risen, as uh, so we were talking about in Sunday school, that isn't appropriate. That is never appropriate. It's harmful to the very ones that Jesus died for. And as we've already seen, what rewards there will be are to be determined, determined by Christ at that future time when he brings the rewards for the righteous. At this point, what we know is we need Christ, we need one another. So, oh, well, we're the kings, we're reigning, we're rich, we've got it. So Paul puts the back on them and reminding us here, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Wait till the Lord comes. The Lord knows things we don't know. Do you believe that? I hope so. And it may be very different. Notice in the Gospels, some of the ones that are commended said, well, when did we ever do that? Some of the people who are faithfully serving God don't even know that they are. They just 
go about, well, I just do what I do, and hopefully the Lord can use me. It's a good attitude. 1 Corinthians um, 4 and verse 9. Next slide. The spectacle in the arena. So here is a, an analogy that's used in different ways, a couple of different places in the New Testament. And it's the arena. 1 Corinthians 4 and 9. Remember, the irony is still going on. Paul says, For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, you know what he's talking about, in last place, like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. So here, the apostles are a cosmic spectacle. Now, what's this uh, metaphor of the the gladiator show, the uh, the arena, and so on? So I'll, I'm going to give a fairly long citation so that we understand what this is from some of the sources I have. Dr. Thistleton says the Corinthians have a grandstand view of the gladiators from their tiered seats as spectators. But Paul and other authentic apostles are put into the ring as the spectacle. That's very ironic. And then the, the word, by the way, theatron would be where we get our word theater. Moreover, he says, with a conscious allusion to the premature eschatology of verse 8, Paul explains that the apostles come behind the Corinthians. Indeed, they bring up the rear as the grand finale of the gladiatorial show. I can't say that, gladiatorial show. Now, in that show, you don't want to be the grand finale. Do you know what happens at the grand finale? The, they die uh, as the defeated uh, foe, so to speak, at the show. Let me read on from Dr. Thistleton. As the drama intensifies, finally the doomed criminals appear who must fight to the death, doomed to die because they cannot win every combat, and their bloody bodies will weaken until humiliation and death overtake them. And then I have some ellipses, which I put in so this citation wouldn't be too long. Paul perceives his apostolic labors as a cosmic spectacle, which if they are evaluated by the Corinthian criteria, seem to be a spectacle of struggle, failure, and disgrace. That's what they see when they see Paul. The irony is he suffered to bring the message of Christ crucified to them at Corinth. Spurned and shamed by the world, hated by the powers that be, offend, he offended his Jewish brothers by preaching crucified Jewish Messiah. He caused the great thinkers of the Greek world, the mighty, the people with status in society, to look at him as a moron, foolish speaker who wanted them to believe things they would never believe. And now, in utter irony, the very church 
that came to, into existence through this gospel turns on him and decides he is not very good. We don't like you. And what happened was some paganized version that looked better and seemed more honorable showed up and they began to give themselves figuratively the best seats at the gladiator show. Paul and the other apostles are the cosmic spectacle. And Campa and Rosner say to depict this, his hardships, Paul uses the disturbing metaphor of a gladiatorial show. And he also points this out. Let's go to verse 10. 1 Corinthians 4.10. Here is uh, more ironic contrast. Now, we already saw Paul and the other apostles, the real ones. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. And um, this is, again, ironic. The hope for outcome would be they would see this and be cut to the heart and feel ashamed about what happened in their own attitudes toward the apostles. But we know from 2 Corinthians, sadly, that's not what happened. It continued to be an issue. In 2 Corinthians, we have what's called the fool's speech by Paul. It's very interesting. And later in 2 Corinthians, he says, if somebody comes to you with a different gospel, different Christ, and so on, you accept that, but you won't accept us who brought the truth. So it's very ironic. Let me cite a review here of um, 1 Corinthians one twenty-five to 27. If you want to jot that down. 1 Corinthians one twenty-five through 27. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Uh, for consider your calling, brother, that there were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Here's the problem. Taking those categories and determining that we should identify with those that the world loves and give ourselves that status. I don't want to be the shamed. I don't want to be the unpopular one. I don't want to be the one who doesn't look that great in the eyes of the community out here. I want to have great glorious, honorable status now. But that may sound good, but it is a sign of unbelief. Why is that a sign of unbelief? Because it means that we don't believe the promises of God. God has promised these things future. And because now we're not popular for the most part, and we're not 
fitting in with the sinful world we live in. And we're scorned and ridiculed because we don't believe like everybody else. Rather than trying to reverse that now and claim the glory, and right now, we need to believe that what God said is true. Christ is coming again. He will determine who is rewarded. And the glory is future. And the whole of Hebrews 11, if you look at that, are about people believing promises of things that they never saw, like like all of the patriarchs. It was for something future that they didn't actually see. So the word there, distinguished, uh, is not really the antonym of dishonored. I looked that up, and I wondered why there was the change there, because there is a word that could have been used, but it's endoxos, which the word doxa is glory, and then it has the end, as in, so it would be uh, glorious, or distinguishes glorious. So you're glorious, but we're dishonored. Now, they have an honor-shame culture, both in the Roman world and in the Jewish one. The ancient Near East was an honor-shame culture. So to be dishonored was a horrible thing. You want to avoid it. But the cross itself is for shameful criminals. But the opposite that they claim is even greater than honored. It's glorious. It's like in splendor. You're in splendor. You've got the splendor, the throne, everything. This is all irony. So it kind of gets our attention. And so I made a statement in my notes that I want to read to you. Paul uses the word glorious, which is in doxa, or in glory. The word that ironically describes their status is stronger. They are glorious in splendor. Again, that sort of thing is only to be seen or known after the Lord returns. That's the Lord's business. He's the one who receives the honor and glory. All honor and glory goes to him. Ironically, some want it now. It's kind of strange when you see people claiming to be Christian sitting on literal thrones in glory. Now, I've seen TV shows where the preacher's sitting on a throne making all this glorious pronouncement. I wonder how that could be if anybody ever read this text right here. If we read the, all of the scripture, it, it reigns in the tendencies that we all have. It makes us feel like, God, I need you to help me. I need to really trust you. Uh, I want to know what the gospel is all about. Now, this word, endoxos, glorious, was used a couple times in Luke. One of them was um, Luke seven 25. I'll read that to you. It's about John the Baptist. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those were gloriously, there's our word, endoxos, clothed, live in luxury, and are found in royal palaces. John the Baptist wasn't any of those things. So Jesus said, splendidly clothed in luxury. 
That's not the way it was. And the glory that God has is something that's yet future, and the glorious church will not be so, according to Ephesians 5.27, but that's yet future. See, there is so much confusion about this. It's very timely, very timely. Somebody called me about some group that has their glory place. They're going to have glory now. If we want the glory now, we want all the riches now, glory, power, look at us, look at us. This is great. Better miracles than the apostles come. It's going to happen, which it really never does. But nevertheless, have they even read these texts? Have they understood what's being said here? Do they see how a real apostle, Paul, was treated by people who are looking for that sort of thing. So it's not wrong to call it over-realized eschatology. It's not yet. It's future. And the glory is future. Not now. No, this doesn't mean that many different types of people uh, fail to comprise the church because, as a matter of fact, God saves people from every realm of life. We already know that. There are people that are very uh, influential that God used, like Chloe's people and the people in Acts that God used. But then there are all different sorts of people. The thing that we have in common isn't where we came from. The thing we have in common is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And there are some who come from what the world will consider upper class. Some come from other situations, really def- best, desperate ones and everything in between. That's not the point. It's not where we came from. It's where we're going with whom. In the body of Christ, we're one because we don't know who's the greatest other than Christ himself. So that's what's going on. So, We're dishonored, which is something you wouldn't want, but you're splendid and glorious. Again, ironic. So we have some applications here. We must preach Christ crucified as we believe God's promises of future glory. Future glory. Those who believe the gospel and trust Christ alone are part of God's family. Third, eschatology which is, by the way, study of the end, the end times. Eschatology always matters, and we must get it right. The more I see bad outcomes and movements that go way astray, including, as Eric was mentioning, Christian Marxism, which is contradiction in terms for sure, um, the eschatology is what leads to the air. One person Uh, wrote a book saying, just look around and see what God's doing, and then you see the kingdom, so you go join it. But how do we look around the world and know that this must be what God's doing and this here isn't? Some people look and see a soup kitchen, and that's what God's doing, and others look and see people uh, going to a claim of great power and influence and they say, oh, what's God doing? We can't look around the world and see what God's doing. We look to the Bible 
and see what God said he's done and how he is uh, has revealed the truth and how he's working through providence and what he says about the end. So observing religion in this era of history isn't going to inform us what God's doing or show us the kingdom. We need to read the Bible and believe the promises. Now let's look at Christ crucified. I want to preach the gospel to myself and to you and to all who would hear. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through B through 24. God was well pleased through the foolishness, by the way, used ironically, of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, indeed, Jews ask for signs, the Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let me, we've preached on that recently, but some here are new since we covered that. I'm going to show you a couple of things here. Christ crucified is a shorthand way of preaching about Jesus's person, his work, substitutionary atonement, his shed blood, his resurrection. In the ancient world, the horrific execution of crucifixion was designed to create the most, not only physical pain, but dishonor. It was the most shameful, horrific way one could die. And so that's why Christ crucified was a scandalon, a stumbling block, a scandal, a trigger trap to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Notice Gentiles and Greeks are used synonymously, so it means all who are Jewish. So you preach a message that before you say one word about it, you know it's going to offend everybody you preach to. The Jews aren't going to like it, nor will anybody else. Why would you take a message that is guaranteed to not make you popular and go preach that? Here's why. Because you believe the promises of God. God has promised that if his word is preached and the truth is preached, he will use that to save those who believe. Even someone as hostile as Saul of Tarsus was, as we saw in Acts, when he heard Stephen preach. Even those who started riots in order to drive Paul out of town because they hated this message. Why would we, since most of the world hated the Jews, because they were the recipients of the promises and the fathers, the Greek world hated them, and they're supposed to be saved by believing in a crucified Jewish Messiah? Yes. Because that's how God chose to work. The gospel doesn't rest on social status. The gospel doesn't rest on the wisdom of man. The gospel isn't dependent 
on attracting people by making this all look good. The gospel is uh, grounded in God's power. Notice Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If we forthrightly preach the truth of Christ and call all people to repentance and faith, those who are smitten to the heart by the Holy Spirit and convicted will be before long rejoicing that they heard it. Sometimes it's immediate. It was in my case. As some have said, it's like a bolt from heaven. One day I'm blaspheming. And when I went to work, I had to tell the guys who heard me blaspheme that now I'm a Christian. But I'm glad it worked out that way because I would uh, I was certainly motivated to stick with it because I, I confessed Christ. God got a hold of me. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is not someone who was famous because he started a world religion. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, the eternal God, we believe the Bible teaches the Trinity. We know that it's true. God the Son, who created all things through the word of his power, God came into our world. The eternal Lagos, as Romans says in John 1, 1. All things were created through him and by him. He was born of a virgin. It's a miraculous virgin birth. He fulfilled many, many detailed prophecies from the Old Testament. He lived a sinless life. No one else did. In Adam all die. Every human being was born in this world dead and alienated from God because of original sin. Jesus, virgin born, son of God, unique, the only begotten, the unique one, the only one of his kind. And his miracles proved his uniqueness. Proved his deity. He did what no one else did because of his God. Predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and bodily ascended to heaven. And he said that he would pour out the Spirit, which he did on the day of Pentecost. And the gospel says, repent and believe the gospel. Turn from serving the world, Satan, sin, your own self, whatever you're serving, and turn to God through Christ. Believe in him. The promise that he gives to all who trust him is forgiveness of sins. Yes, forgiveness of sins. If you hear a whole lot and you never hear about forgiveness of sins, there's something wrong. Because that's our problem. It's our sin that condemns us to hell. It's forgiveness that releases us from God's wrath against sin. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and trust him alone. His blood washes away the sins of those who turn to him. And he paid the price once for all. Now, I'll read some scriptures as as we have some time left to show you from these scriptures some of the things that are said about biblical Christianity and those who know Christ and what it's all about. First, Titus 
2, 11 through 14. The first two verses are on this slide. The next slide will have the next two. Paul said this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The present age right now, the church age, from Pentecost until Christ comes for us. And then there are more things that are going to happen. But here, for all, not, even, not meaning universalism, all are saved, but for all types of people, whoever they may be, those who believe the gospel. And this is in the context of changed lives in the, for those who know Christ. We can't adopt the sins of the world, a worldly value system, want to be pleasing to the world, want to please ourselves, and say, oh, I'm a Christian. It's not true. If the things that we read about here are not even on the agenda, then how can that be called salvation? We're not saved by works, but what happens when God does save us is he changes us. And those, as we fail at times, we all do, we're convicted and we get back on track by God's grace and by the prayers and encouragement of one another. 13 and 14 of Titus 2. Waiting for our blessed hope. Look at that. Waiting for our blessed hope. The great, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, the reason I cite these four verses about what it looks like to be the people, what our hope is, what we're wanting to see as God helps us, what God is doing through his promises, is it isn't the sort of glorious, grandiose claims that the Corinthian church was making vis-a-vis Paul and the other apostles. Their claims were such that Paul used biting irony to get them to be jolted into reality. So you're the ones, Corinthians, who Paul spent a year and a half discipling, preached the gospel to, and now you're going to sit in the box seats and watch us be humiliated and killed at the spectacle. That's shocking. Hopefully a few people thought, oh, wow. That can't be right. Titus is telling us what we should be thinking. There are people who will tell us if we're looking for the blessed hope, we're pathetic failures who are looking for an escape clause. Not true. We long for our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm glad that when I came to the Lord, preachers were telling us to look for him who would come. 
redeem us from lawlessness, purify for himself a people for his own possession. In Sunday school and through some YouTube videos that we've been making, we're looking at those who are teaching that this sort of hope is utterly pathetic. We have to get it now. If you don't have your reigning, your glorious, your you know, all the great things, the glorious church, if you don't have it now, then God won't come back for you because you're utterly pathetic and you're not worth it. That's literally what people say. And that is utterly shameful. It's utterly shameful. I wonder if those who teach that have ever even read 1 Corinthians. All of it. Beware when a verse here and a verse there, skip the ones we don't like, you can make the Bible say about anything. But if you get the whole counsel of God, you'll see that Christ is unique. He is the creator. He is the sinless one. And his appearing our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the blessed hope, rightly so called, because it is in the Bible. That's why we say, believe the promises of God. Now, saying that you can be perfected now doesn't create perfection. It creates worse sin. And it happened in Corinth, and it's happened in history. We need to be circumspect and realize how badly we need the Lord to be working in our lives and how badly we need prayer and how badly we need to honor him because it's only by him that we live a life that would be ultimately to his glory. The last slide is the one that I mentioned earlier. It's a verse about splendor using the same word, that Paul used ironically about the Corinthians who would, who would, in contrast to the apostles, they were glorious. The apostles are dishonored. What a horrible turnabout and what a horrible uh, wrong way of understanding the church. Ephesians 5.25b-27 Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The word splendor is that same word again, endoxos. Endoxos. In splendor. I'll save you a whole lot of sorrow, a whole lot of confusion, and a whole lot of pain by telling you something. You cannot go to any meeting anywhere in the world or any Suppose an apostle, prophet, great holy man, somebody who knows something nobody else ever figured out. I don't care where you go and how grand the claims are, you won't get this. You will not get the glory they're telling you you're going to get. 
You're not going to get better miracles than Jesus ever did. Why? Because nobody's ever done greater things than he did. He was proving his deity. This is what God does, and it's not yet. Now we remember the Lord's death until he comes. Let me put this in the picture of the Lord's Supper and how it fits in. In Luke, Jesus dined with his apostles and spoke about the blood of the covenant, the cup. This is the new covenant in my blood. Some are out there saying there is no new covenant. Well, they didn't tell Jesus that. Because there is. It's prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 31. Do this in remembrance of me. The cup fit into the scheme of the Passover. There was it from Exodus. The fourth cup hasn't yet been taken. That's future. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, we covered that. But we're reminding ourselves. So the cup that was in Luke, Luke 22, is before Christ died, but telling the significance of it, the Last Supper. The Lord's Supper that the church partakes in is reminding us how we're a people of God, like the people in Egypt became a people, and who, who made us the people of God, Jesus Christ, who died for sins once for all, and we're remembering his death and proclaiming it until he comes. So we have the past, what God did in Christ, the present, we're the church, not just this group, but any Christian anywhere gathering in his name, and we're believing the promise of the future. That final cup doesn't happen without the Lord dining with us in person. So if you hear about some group that already has the glory, already has the splendor, already has the uh, manifested sons of God or whatever, it's a lie. It's a wicked lie. And the people who get taken in by that, if they live long enough on the earth, some will keep believing it until their life runs out, but many end up disillusioned, hopeless, fearful. Some walk away from the faith because they were dangled over a false promise. Some wonder what they did wrong because they were told things that weren't true. Dear ones, the glory is real, it's future, and will partake. In the meantime, we remember the Lord's death till he comes. This holy church without blemish is what God is going to do. Who presents this church? He might present the church to himself in splendor. I was just reading some material by people who say, we present the church to Christ. Not Christ presents an unblemished church to himself because of what happens at the resurrection. It never really happens. You know, the false claims go on and on for centuries. It never happens. 
It always fails. It always fizzles out. It always harms people. I'm very happy to be part of any Christian fellowship. And wherever you go, you know people that you just meet that love the Lord, and you know it. Have you met somebody you've never seen before and start talking to them, and they're from somewhere else, and they know the Lord, and you have that in common? You don't have to have the same prophet. You just need to know the Lord and will hunger to learn. So that being said, be encouraged. The number of things that God does supernaturally as we are in the church age and we pray for each other isn't diminished for lack of making grand claims. I'm telling you, I'm not supposed to be alive. They, they, they told my wife so many times I was going to die. Back I was never going to see my 62nd birthday. I made it. A lot longer than that. But not because of me. God is merciful. God is merciful. Nobody made a grand claim. Another time I was going to die, people prayed. Another time I was going to die, people prayed. That doesn't make me great. It just makes me still here to preach Christ. We don't need to embellish anything. We just need to depend. We have people now who we see the prayer chain coming through with a premature baby that may or may not uh, grow quickly and healthily. And we want health and healthy. We want that soon. We have a brother who had cancer surgery. We had others who've gone through this and that. There's nothing deficient about Christians who love each other and pray and care about each other, and they didn't go to the glory meeting. God is glorified by what he does in his love and mercy. Don't feel like God gave up on you because you still have problems. That's a sign that you're a human being and that you know him and trust him because there's no problem that will ever separate you or me from the love of Christ. No tribulation, no trial, no deficiency, no lack of having some secret teaching because we cast our cares on him because he cares for us. And if we get something wrong, we can be corrected from Scripture and gladly say, there, I see how I had that wrong. So we don't have to make grand claims. And I do pray that God will spare us from our just grandiose claims that would be similar to what were made in the church at Corinth that ended up harming them and dishonoring the very apostle who brought them the gospel. And so I do thank God for you. I thank God for those who believe. And as we close in prayer, let's remember those that we know who are suffering uh, in our midst and some that we've heard about from elsewhere. Dear Lord, thank you for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for caring about us. Thank you for saving us. And we pray that you would help us to live lives dependent on you 
and praising you for what you've done and for the forgiveness of sins. And help us to honor you by depending on you and praising you and looking for your return. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.